This is the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. This is where it all counts. This is why we're here. This is why each one of us are here. And now, here's your host. And we are back. And the summer, summer seminar series keeps rolling along. This is Matt Caraccio of the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. This summer, we are digging deep as we take a look at the movement marvels. And those are those players that not only impact their position and the way we view it, but maybe how they've changed the game and even how they've changed our opinion and our lens on the game of football. And I am ecstatic to welcome today one of the people that has really mentored me in the world of scouting that really from the very beginning when I was still kind of figuring out how do you begin to coalesce a report? How do you begin to think kind of analytically about football? I went to the Scouting Academy and I am just privileged to welcome Mr. Dan Hatman of the Scouting Academy here. Dan, thank you for joining us for this summer seminar series. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to uh, you know, unpack this stuff with you. These are great conversations. Yeah, and, and I think that's exactly where I kind of want to start with that conversation. And that's the tone of this whole summer summer seminar series. We're trying to unpack really the, the what makes football players so outstanding from not only an athletic perspective, but also from um, their ability to affect the way we even see the game. And today we're going to be talking about running back position and specifically a movement marvel in his own right, Mr. Leon Bell of the New York Jets. And I'm just going to kind of let you begin to muse on Le'Veon Bell in terms of what makes him a movement marvel in your eyes, that running back position. So I got my first exposure to Le'Veon uh, way back in his time at Michigan State. So one of my jobs when I was with the Philadelphia Eagles was I had running backs for cross-check. And so that year, that's the 2013 draft, and uh, you're looking at a series of players. This is Monty Ball. This is Le'Veon Bell. This is Eddie Lacy. This is Giovanni Bernard. And Le'Veon was certainly discussed, but Monty was kind of the one everybody wanted to to crown, at least early on from that standpoint. And I tell this story because this player and me kind of have an interesting relationship in a couple of ways. So the first one came from my, before I got to Philly, I was with the Giants. Well, I was Jets, but in between that, but my first time in the game in the NFL was with the Giants. And that was a very size oriented organization, right? The philosophy that big people beat up little people. Um, still is a is an active thought process there. So, you know, Brandon Jacobs is an archetype of running back that I got exposed to early on. You know, that that's you know that was the kind of physical marvel that I was taught to aspire to. And really, one of the core factors besides just the, the size and the power was contact balance. Right? That was something that was always kind of hammered home. We got so ironically that that group of players, Eddie Lacy was very intriguing to me. And I know we're talking Bell. We're going to get we're going to get there. But Eddie was very interesting to me because of that contact balance. Now, he didn't keep up with his professional eating habits and his ability to take care of his body down the stretch, which certainly negatively impacted his time in Green Bay. But if you go back and watch him in Alabama, it was very very hard for defenders of really any angle to get a shot on him that would get him down with that first blow. Um, he could really take them from all different angles and keep going, which was fascinating to me. And so again, that whole profile was something that I was interested in. Well, this is the, again, really the, the 
point in time in my education, in my evaluation, where really, I don't know why it took this long. No one else hammered this home beforehand, but uh, people like Lewis Riddick and then the staff there under Andy Reid made sure I understood that as the evaluator, and I really use the term evaluate. You've heard me separate evaluation from valuation. The evaluator, it really in no way, shape, or form matters what you like. All right. Evaluation has absolutely nothing to do with what we like. The, pl- the game is done. The plays are over. We can't change them. Uh, I could love the player. It doesn't change how he plays football. I could hate the player. It doesn't change how he plays football. It's just this is they are what they are. Our job as evaluators is to tell their story. I'm really, really attuned to the language of the storyteller and the evaluation process. Once I understand their story, then I have a separate conversation about value and what that's worth. So anyway, I'm doing running back cross checks and I can't help but realize that when I'm looking at guys like Eddie Lacy and then I've got a room of players that look more like, well, LaShawn McCoy and Deion Lewis and we just come out of the Brian Westbrook era in Philly. Eddie Lacy doesn't look like any of them. I feel like I'm missing something here. So I went and spent time with Deuce Staley, our running backs coach, and did cross-check with him for a while. And, it, you know, it doesn't take more than 10, 15 minutes to sit down with someone with that kind of brain and them to hammer home what they're looking for in a language that made it very, very clear. And within 12 seconds of meeting with him, you can reorder the running backs, and all of a sudden it's Giovanni Bernard and Andre Ellington. Those are the Philadelphia fits, you know. And as much as I like a guy like Lacey, it comes down. Well, again, this is that Le'Veon Bell class. And Levy was a, a pain proposition for me because we were a zone-based team. All right, we, we ran a lot of zone inside and outside. And Le'Veon liked to take things with a perimeter. Right? I, I'm, I actually have my report in front of me from way back when. And you know, I called him a fluid runner. I talked to him about being more decisive, playing with better speed on zone concepts, particularly outside zone where the spacing was better and he could see the lanes better, that he had the athletic tools to put his foot in the ground and change directions as well as win with speed on the edge. You would see him constantly run to the perimeter and hurdle people. Over and over again at Michigan State, he tried to take things that would have interior lanes open and he'd still bounce to the perimeter and try to hurdle people. And... That was a problem for me because, again, in learning our system, we needed those A and B gap runs in partnership with the perimeter runs to really mess with the linebackers. You know, we wanted to have the whole gamut. That's why you run outside zone. It's not to run a D gap every time. You know, we want to have options here, make the defense be wrong. And I was nervous about a player that wasn't presenting with a profile that showed me he'd run in the A and B gaps. He was indecisive. He, again, tried not to get there. You know, he had, it was carrying, we estimated 235 pounds in Michigan State. He was bigger than he plays at now for sure. But again, he didn't come with power. He didn't come with that intensity in there. And so as I read this report, even now, you know, I talked about him resembling more of kind of an Arian Foster and the zone concepts with the fluidity and the body type and what he did. But again, he didn't run it inside like Arian did. He he constantly wanted to bounce. And so I was nervous about, I put him in a potential starter category, but I couldn't get fully into it because these things that we believed in the inside, he didn't manifest with. So I had him in the, in the day two range. He gets drafted in day two, obviously puts up. Great production in the NFL. So I could sit here and tell you that I was right, right? Because I had a second round grade on him. He went in the second round and he performed. So doesn't that make me right? And I'm the first person to say no. Because my projection for him, what I thought his future would look like, has in no way been how it's manifested. Because when you watch him now, or certainly when you watched him in Pittsburgh, 
one of the things that became his calling card was his patience and understanding of concepts and his willingness to run inside. He had the physical profile to do all that, but he re- not shaped not only his body, not only did he trim weight and become more dynamic athletically, but he also disciplined his mind and really understood what those inside runs could be and why they were asking for him and trusted his linemen to execute them and really adapted his game inside in a way that we didn't see before. And so, no, I don't think I'm right because I matched the round. No, I don't think I'm right because my round grade said he'd be an eventual starter that could produce. I didn't predict what he would do because no one could. You couldn't watch him at Michigan State, just film alone, and understand what he'd do. You had to unpack the individual. You had to kind of figure out why. Clearly, Pittsburgh did a great job of understanding how he needed to be coached and pairing with a coach that could do that, understanding that he needed to trust the blockers in a way that he didn't at Michigan State, understanding that they could get that installed, and then, again, getting him to be disciplined and taking care of They did all those things. So he did it. He Yes, he absolutely did it. They also gave him the entire environment necessary to do that, and he reshaped everything. The guy that you watch in Pittsburgh, because I, I don't think the Jets stuff's quite matched that yet, but their offensive line, we'll get into that later, but – it's no way in shape or form what it looked like at Michigan State. They just they they seem like different human beings, which is why I wanted to talk about them. I wanted to talk about the fact that our job is to predict the future. You want to co- pare it down to its its core traits. We don't care about what they did in the past. If I watch a high school kid as a college recruiter, I don't care how you played in high school. I care about what you're going to do for my college. If I watch a player in the draft process, I don't care about what you did in college. I care about what that predicts for me. The entirety of our job is trying to predict the future of a human being, right? And, and human beings we know are variable creatures. We know they develop and they change. So we're trying to hit a moving target inside of these, this, this context. And so we not only have to observe these outcomes, we have to understand why. What I didn't know because I wasn't responsible for going to Michigan State, right? I was tasked with film-only cross-check. The limitation of film-only cross-check is film is limited. It doesn't necessarily tell you about what's happening with that human being. Maybe going on campus, I would have talked to someone that could have unpacked. Maybe he didn't trust that long for the line. Maybe he spent two years of getting his face smashed in by linebackers in the A and B gap because they didn't finish blocks. And he just said, screw it. I'll just take it to the perimeter. I'm not going to do this anymore. And that once he got with an offensive line that he felt was competent, now he slowed down. And he showed those things. Maybe I could have learned that from a coach. Maybe I could have gotten that from somebody there by going on site and just couldn't have gotten it from the film alone. He just didn't do it, right? Film alone, he didn't do it. It wasn't observable. So I listed what he did. But I didn't get a chance to unpack all those layers. And so I didn't get a chance to really predict what he would be. And he's just such a fascinating study for me from that step. I, just, I learned so many things in that cross-check process. And, and I again, I try to ad- admit with this, like, no, my yeah, my grade matched up to where he got selected. Yes, technically he's a starter, but again, I don't think that makes me right because my projection of his future is not what he manifested. Well, I mean, th- I mean, to unpack everything you just said there, there were so many little tidbits there that I, I would love to go in and deep dive into. But I, I think the first thing that really kind of resonates with me and the, the salient point that I think you brought to the table that I think in our world, the world of film analysis. I think there is a disconnect between our understanding of the human being and the understanding of the player because the player is not just what we see on film. And in fact, I, let me rephrase that. I think the understanding of the player incorporates who they are as a human being. And we don't get a chance 
to necessarily dive into that. And I think you're right. If you were on campus and you had the chance to ask some of the questions that your film analysis were raising, you may have wrote a completely different report, yet still came to the same conclusion, in which case you would have been right. But, then, <laughs> but, but, but I mean, but, but, I, but I feel you on that. And I think that that's an important point to, to kind of tease out. I, I would like to ask you, though, because most of us are living in the world of film analysis, what types of enduring understanding did you take from his film analysis and how he's kind of now kind of begun to kind of mature, change and develop over time? Is there something that has now informed you about that position, about film analysis in general? What is it about that kind of journey and about Le'Veon's kind of growth and development that may have informed now your future exposures of various players, whether it be at the running back position or not. Is there some enduring understandings that you did take from that experience? Be open to outliers. Be open to the idea that just because 98% of the population, even within the space, may be more... um, the bumpers on the bowling lane might be tighter. The bounds of their performance might be tighter. What you're seeing in the past may heavily predict their future. Be open to the fact that we are assessing human beings and they are capable of change. Um, so I think when you unpack why they performed and you feel like they got to a level of performance but didn't necessarily maximize everything they're capable with, that doesn't lead to a conclusion. It just leads to a new series of inquiry. We have to go down that path now. And it, it's why people always buy stock and trades, right? I mean, you go into a, a market like the draft or any or recruiting or whatever else, you buy stock and trades you can't attain otherwise because otherwise you can't attain them, right? Blue chip traits are just that, and they're rare. So the problem that we have and the reason why boom-bust prospects – have a heavier rate of bust than boom, right? The idea that, yes, all pro performers are usually blue chip athletes, but not every blue chip athlete is an all pro performer. That causation correlation doesn't necessarily end the inquiry. It's not, it's not a conclusion. To me, it's a, it's a guideline. It's saying, now I have to try to figure out why can't they execute that? So, for example, right now, not to completely change players, but in, in the class. No, so this summer we assigned Garrett Bowles as one of the offensive linemen. And Garrett Bowles is big. Garrett Bowles is athletic. Garrett Bowles is competitively tough. And Garrett Bowles has the ability to play with strength. If I could tell you, you could have an offensive lineman who's big, athletic, tough, and can play with strength, chances are you're saying, yes, I want that. The problem is, is that he's not disciplined of his mind or his technique, and he does not consistently apply those things to any particular assignment. There are run blocks that he'll execute one time and not the next time. There are pass blocks he'll execute one time and not the next time. And so despite him having all these traits that led them to draft this player in the first round, issues that he had going all the way back to Utah, because he had the same inconsistent performance back then, that hasn't changed, despite all the coaching and all the starts and everything else, he hasn't changed. So I bring him up because I have to be open to the levy and bells because if, if you can anticipate that you can get an edge in a market, 
and acquire something potentially as an undervalued asset. But at the same time, I have to understand that we are talking about an outlier, that a larger group of players with blue chip trades, if they have not shown the ability to gain control over those and consistently use those and techniques at certain positions, it becomes really, really hard. You know, offensive lines to different deal from that standpoint, because I think about it like the Goldilocks principle, the not too hard, not too soft, not too hot, not too cold. Everything with offensive line is these minuscule areas of success. I can't overset, but I can't underset. I can't punch too early, but I can't punch too late. Everything is like this really small place. And Howard Mudd talks about like space-time awareness. And he's not even convinced it can be taught. He thinks that some players have a better understanding of space and time than others. So by the time you limit the number of human beings big enough and athletic enough to perform NFL offensive line, and then you take inside of that group the ones that have space-time awareness, you've drastically truncated the market in terms of who can perform. Um, and that becomes more difficult. Now, when you get to a running back, we're talking about with Bell, you do have more opportunity to be creative outside of structure. It's not enumerate. It's not everything is outside of structure, but you have more opportunity. You don't have much, you can't really perform outside of structure at offensive line. You know, you're, you're working within very tight confines. And so to me, that's been kind of the lesson is where, where can I have a little more risk tolerance? You know, is it positional based? Is it skill set based? Where can I start to understand that? And then if I can do that and I can unpack more about the when and the where and the why and the how, I have a better chance. I'm not saying it's going to be perfect, but I have a better chance of predicting that human being's future success. And so if we kind of take now Le'Veon Bell as he enters the league and he and he goes to, you know, the Steelers and he's now with the Steelers and you're talking about, you know, kind of that patience and things that are developing um, at the position for him. What is it about Le'Veon Bell and his NFL career thus far that has just made you kind of single him out also as one of those players that you think has, I don't want to say transcended the position because I know there's a, a lot of players that we could talk about that transcend uh, you know, the levels of capacity or ability in a particular position. I mean, the Barry Sanders of the world and the Adrian Peterson for different reasons, of course. But what is it about Le'Veon Bell that kind of, makes him belong in the conversation as a kind of marvel at that position in the current NFL. And I'm glad and I'm careful to say the current NFL because I am, you know, the NFL of the 1980s, Le'Veon Bell is probably not the ideal running back. He's probably not going to fit as you kind of articulately stated. He wouldn't be the Philadelphia running back. That would have been Andre Ellington and Giovanni Bernard. He wouldn't have been the running back choice of the Dallas Cowboys at the time in the eighties or the giants of the eighties. I mean, he wouldn't have been that choice. So, I mean, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I want to say is of the NFL today, why is Le'Veon Bell still relevant continues to be relevant and, what do you think this says about the position and your understanding of the position moving forward? So we'll start with the running, the actual running part of the running back position. And then we'll, we'll come over to the passing game. Cause obviously we've seen tremendous growth and the expectations there. So on the running side, the, the patience borderlines goes up to, you know, right up to that line, if not, almost crosses that line on like too much. Like, come on now. Like, at some point you gotta, you gotta go. The thing that allows him to be that patient to that degree to manipulate 
linebackers to make his blockers right and then still get the yards necessary for that there would be a good run is that his ability to actually accelerate and move. And so that, that his movement patterns post-decision from a point of not really going anywhere, right? He's, he's kind of, you know, almost dilly-tallying behind an offensive lineman. Uh, or, and then when he decides, that ability for him to activate from the decision and for his body to then translate that into something and for him to gain yards, that's really special. And I think part of that's because of him working on his body. He has, he has really transformed his body. I mean, that was like the, the joke on him coming out of Michigan State was softer, softer midsection, right? If you did a, a body type sentence on him, you would have talked about it. And it wasn't the firmest abs. You know, he has worked on his body and now is taking more of those athletic traits that he had that were clearly underneath all that at Michigan State and, and getting those going. So he has that. And then that to talk about the today's NFL, a running back has to be a function of the passing game. And not just pass protection, like an actual legitimate function of the passing game in order to be valuable. And I use that term because we're talking about actually being compensated. Otherwise, we're talking about day three draft pick investment. We're talking about minimum veteran salary type stuff. Guys that are one-trick ponies get lumped into those categories. When you add passing game value, now it's a different deal because – we can use on all downs, and more importantly, you're not a run pass tell. You know, you put Legarrette Blunt in the game. Not a lot of mysteries. What we're going to try to do here, you know, it's whether or not he goes and gets it. And you block it. No one's afraid of him catching the ball and doing something. But Christian McCaffrey is not a run pass tell. Every every snap, the linebackers and the safeties are preparing from runs from the A gap out to the D gap. Passes that are going to come from inside out, outside in, or splitting out and doing something else, right? You have to be legitimately concerned about that. Well, Levian was doing that before Christian came in, in that you had to be concerned about all that stuff because he could actually separate from linebackers, run true routes, not just run the angle, not just run the flat, not just run the wheel, but actually run a series of routes and generate separation. He added that to his game. Another thing he really wasn't tasked with doing at Michigan State. So there's another one of my failures. He wasn't didn't have exposure to him doing it. Therefore, I couldn't grade much of him in the passing game. I noted his pass pro, but that's all I had. Well, he goes and adds that to his game. Well, now all of a sudden we can put him on the field and we can do a lot with him. Because you can put two running backs in the field, decide who you want to split out, who you want to run, do all sorts of stuff. We saw Cleveland kind of tease that out a little bit last year with the two running back package. We used to call that pony in West Coast language for anybody that wants to know. Um <laughs> But those two running back packages are, are valuable. But even if you just go one back, the ability for that player to be the fifth option, for you to stress your coverage now and saying, okay, you want to bring more than four? We'll take our chances with our five on your six. You know, you're gonna have a really tough time doing that because I made a lot of one-on-ones there. You know, you you bring you bring five man pressure, you can bracket one, choose wisely because I got four one-on-one matchups. And now if all of a sudden I'm a legitimate threat of my running back position, your most common matchup is going to be a linebacker. Well, how many linebackers today do we trust in coverage on a consistent basis and that can defend A and B gap runs? We have a little bit of both. We have linebackers that are, you know, still kind of fit that old thumper mentality. And then we have linebackers that are maybe 225 and run around in space. But the idea that you can do both 
well, if I got a running back that can do both, your best chance to defend him is if I have a linebacker that can do both. Well, there's actually less linebackers that can do both than there are running backs that can do both. And so it creates an additional advantage from that standpoint. Um, so I hope that answers your question. No, no, no. I, I think it does. And I, and I, it's, it's funny. We were having very similar discussions about this. I argue that the running back well of talent is going to be potentially, and even the well of talent at wide receiver is going to be potentially be able to uh, start being mined for talent that will be both functional in the backfield and at that slot position. And the slot receiver will still soon become the quote unquote weapon, as we used to call them, the the weapon or the wing back or the hybrid player. I, I think that that slot receiver will begin to become that running back multi-purpose. Think Percy Harvin meets modern NFL, and you have a win-win. Because yeah, that's Percy, what, if they're the small I mean? body guys. Oh, yeah. I think we're going to have the two types. And then we're going to have big body slots that can come in and make 11 personnel look like 12 personnel. Yep. A little bit of blocking. Again, get the same mismatches, technical, smart, competitive. Um, but, yeah, why have a small body guy that I can only line up there? as opposed to having a small body guy that I think can be a little bit of running back, a little bit of slot, maybe some jet motion, you know, certainly if they can bring foot speed for all three levels, but that starts to kind of expand past. No, no, of course, of course. And I'm also thinking about that ever so important dollar and economizing their, their opportunity for their roster space and how that might become to fruition. But you said a couple of things there about variability and talking about context being very important when you are looking at these players, because I think the epidemic in our community is to synthesize the entirety of a player into five words. And I do think that that becomes yes, important. And yes, it's functional at the NFL level to really synthesize you. That was something that you were very, very much a big part of really pushing me um, to really become more succinct in my vocabulary, my verbiage, my understanding, because people have, as you would say, a few minutes to read these things, to read these kind of, you know, blurbs on a player before they have to move on and make a decision. So you've got to really make sure you're packing in everything you need to in a very clear kind of 500 word or less paragraph. I'll never forget that from my time at the Academy. Um, and it's, and I remember it fondly because it, it really did prove to me how much I had to do in terms of my learning, how far much further I had to go and how much further I am trying to go. But I want, I want to know, I feel like that we've taken that as a community, maybe to the, to the other side, we've, we've gone so far to really truncate all of the dynamicism of a player into five words that I think context is becoming almost, almost like a, almost like a, almost like a, almost like a, a, a kind of like a statement at the end of a commercial about insurance, like, you know, subject to negotiation and, you know, all the, all the quick things like, but context matters when we say these words. And I don't, I, I think that we don't understand how context does shape the understanding of some of the traits that you put forth. So when you think about Le'Veon, for example, and you're talking about some of his, you know, contextual situations where, you know, he is a player that was maybe, you know, a little bit more adept at, let's say, you know, finding running lanes on the interior, but a little bit less competent on the exterior or able to handle, um, block, able to handle contact that was indirect or meaning a tackle from a, a different angle or some sort. I guess my point is, or my question to you is why, where does context really need to fit in terms of curating a good evaluation of a player and what maybe does Le'Veon have any lessons to teach us about that? 
That's a very rich question. So you can attack it in any way you want. But I think context sure. is being left a little to well, to the I, side. I don't know. I don't know how you feel about that. I, maybe I I'm wrong. Tattoos, but it, you know, if I had to get one, it would probably be the word context. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a it's a big part of what I believe. Let, let me try to attack it this way. So think about everybody you've ever met that's talked about football: coaches, players, scouts, TV analysts, whatever. Everybody. You've all heard them use the word good. Good game, good rep, good play, good concept, good athlete, good size, good, 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 good. If you were to stop all those people and look them in the eye and say, hey, could you tell me your definition for the word good? I bet you anything, 70% of them have never thought about it. Football, for as long as this game has been going, as for as many people are involved, as much money is involved, football is horrible about definitions. We allow everybody to basically make up their own language, however the heck they want. And as long as we use these certain buzzwords, everybody else is supposed to understand what we mean. So you talk about context. So take, you know, uh, running back, burst. Well, most people are going to just apply that to acceleration, right? They're going to say burst, that means acceleration. Okay, well, in order to burst through the, the lane, the hole, not just talking run to the perimeter and turn the corner, but actually get through a hole, you would need to be confident in your decision of where you want to go. Then you need to athletically put your foot in the ground because chances are the track that you're on is not necessarily immediately at that point. Redirect your body towards that point. Then start to accelerate towards that point, which may be as narrow as 12 to 18 inches, maybe as wide as four to five yards. It may be behind a lead blocker that's with you in the backfield. It may be behind a lead blocker that's pulling from the other side of the formation. It may be with, you know, different types of motions. We might have tight ends coming in across the formation first to hit somebody else on the other side. You might have offensive linemen that are working two-on-one blocks and then departing to the second level. You might have guys that are just immediately covering people. And then you have defenders that may have body parts in that lane or might be squeezing that. You might have offensive linemen that once you've made that decision are now no longer in the place you thought they'd be. You might have defenders that once you make that decision are no longer where you thought they'd be. Well, now all of a sudden, well, well, hold on. Burst isn't just acceleration. Not every hole is so wide that we could drive a Mack truck through it. So now the ability to burst should be thought of as a phase not simply acceleration. It's how do you get to and through the hole? Now, well, now we have to take all those things into consideration, and maybe we only trust them when it is clean. When the hole is clean, they can run through it. But as soon as it gets mucked up, I did use M there, not F. Um, (laughs) As soon as it gets a little messy, we'll change it up there. As soon as it gets messy, maybe they they lose the confidence in their systems. They start to shut it down. Well, now I have to be able to tell that story. I mentioned before, I, I think of this as storytelling. I have to tell that player's story. His story clearly depends on how much he can trust his blocking. And some guys are different. Le'Veon trusts his blocking. He's able to do all that because he feels like he knows what they're going to do. They're in a, in, a, in a relationship. It's a choreographed dance, right? And the more time you spend with those blockers, the more you understand that, okay, you know, you might have a guy that only finishes a reach block after contact. Not everybody looks like Jason Kelsey, where it's immediately snapped, throw their head across, and magically the other guy's hit. I mean, that's just 
freaky. Sometimes you're going to have a guy that he can't get his head across until after he's made contact, and he needs his sheer strength to pull him across the face of that defensive lineman. Well, if that's the case, the picture won't be clear early. You'll see the defender's color in that gap up until the point where that blocker actually pulls himself across. And until you come to learn that that guy's going to get it, he will get that done, but it ain't going to be early. When you finally figure that out, you can keep pressing that hole because he's going to get it done because you trust him, and that, that's that been proven over time. And so not only is it trying to understand this athlete, we're trying to understand this athlete within another unit. Now it's this athlete working with those blockers, and those blockers are working within an offense, and that offense is working within a team. And so, you know, these these wheels, you know, work together. And so one of these things pulls on another one, and the more you can understand those, I think the better off you are at telling that story. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. There's something that's uh, talking about going off topic. There's something that's very interesting to me that I've been trying to read a lot about and understand better. It's this idea of tensegrity, which is something that is inherently part of the human body where you injure yourself in one area of your body. It could be that you feel it in a different area because everything's interconnected and everything is pulling on everything else. And there's almost a, a tensegrity, so to speak, to the actual nature of football. You know, there's almost a kind of your, your, the fact that you, you know, did not block the backside defensive end is going to have, you know, chaotic and tumultuous exchanges on the front side of the play. And we have to be aware of those things. And I, and I love the fact, Dan, that you said telling a story because obviously it's no secret. Anybody listening to this, people know that I'm very much into that whole problem solver idea, but, but telling a story is, is the same idea in the sense that you're trying to holistically capture who that player is. And one thing that really has resonated and stands with me, and I was wondering if you can just unpack a little bit for the listeners, is when I was you know, in the academy looking at the running back position, and we've had many discussions about this, you talked about the phases of the play, and you're talking about things like you know, chapter one of our story might be the interior run game. Chapter two might be the outside run game. And the reason why these are so broadly and generally kind of titled is because there is no one grade or one word to describe what they do as a runner. It's going to depend upon, you know, the entirety of the situation that they're in. So I was wondering for, for, you know, for our listeners, when you are trying to, again, this is probably more of a take home for people. um, When you're trying to begin to analyze that running back position and you're trying to build in some kind of titles for those chapters of the story of that player, what might some of those titles of those chapters be to help begin to tell a, a more complete picture rather than giving us maybe the what I would consider to be the outline or the five-word summary? What would be kind of the, the kind of titles of some of those chapters in those stories, Dan, from your experience and from your background? What would you, in that particular position, sure. what would you think? So the the two you know so the bucket is the run game right and so now we're yeah. going to sort all the things inside the bucket I got I have three toddler boys and I have fourth on the way so the the toy bucket is like my you know that'll be my reference here so I'm picturing like a toy box right we got this toy box we got a bunch of different things inside of it that's the run game the run game is the toy box inside of it we got a bunch of different stuff and now we have to sort it and every player's sorting is going to be different right some players are going to be simple as zoning gap. If they're good on gap runs, they're not on zone runs. This was Darren McFadden. Darren McFadden, when you said, hey, we're going to run here, this is your read, and then be an athlete off of that. He had great years in Oakland. 
Then the years where they switched to zone schemes, and it was, hey, Darren, here's plan A, B, and C. Concurrently work through all of those. He didn't have as good of years in Oakland. He was better on one type of run than another. And it was that, so that's how we split the toy box, this side and that side. For some players, well, gap breaks down into plays that are going to be run inside. So a lot of your powers and counters and stuff like that can certainly run inside. But then you're going to have things like your pin-pull series where we're going to get out to the perimeter. So even gap series can go there. Zone clearly has inside zone and outside zone, right? And we have different plans with that um, in different tracks with that. Well, then you might come up with a runner where it's, okay, I like them on the A and B gap stuff. So I don't care if it's inside zone or gap. As long as we're flowing on the interior, this guy has does a good job. But maybe he doesn't have the ability to take it to the perimeter and vice versa. You might have a player that, listen, as long as we get the gap stuff out to the perimeter or we take outside zone towards the perimeter – and space everything out a little better, we're going to be in great shape, but we're not going to be okay inside. Maybe we're going to be better in one-gap scenarios where he just has to read off of his blocking in the linebackers, and every time we introduce a lead blocker, it goes haywire versus, hey, maybe this guy's better with a lead blocker. You know, And so that's how I start looking at it. I start looking at this toy box and saying, what are all the things inside of it? And then again, I have to sort that pile depending on what I'm getting from that player. I, I I can't go into preconceived notions of a running back. I really firmly don't believe that. Again, I'm evaluating them. I've never coached them. I've never told them what to do. has nothing to do with what I like. My whole job is just watch how they play football. I'm just trying to study how they play football and figure out when I trust it and when I don't. And once I figure out that information, now I've sorted that toy box, and I can come to somebody and say, you can trust him on these type of runs, and here's why. And then over here in this other pile, I don't trust them on these type of runs, and here's why. And, again, that story is going to be different. Some of your elite players, there maybe isn't much of a difference. You know, I joke like Aaron Donald on the defensive line side, right? Aaron Donald's like a seven-word report because he's really freaking good at everything. Like, we're done here, folks. There's no nuance. Like, that, you know, it is what it is. But I can't do that for his teammate Michael Brockers. I really like Michael Brockers, but Michael Brockers isn't really good at everything in all situations and all alignments. So i got to sort that toy box differently to tell his story than I do for his teammate Aaron. Even though I like both guys, they're just not the same player. And i got to go tell their story. And so as soon as we drop our ego in terms of what we like and don't like, evaluation could care less about us. It's just, The games are played. Why does it matter what I like? It, they, they've already played the game. I can't coach them for how to play that game. I'm just observing how they played and then trying to help somebody else who I assume has not watched that player, learn what to expect about how this guy played football. Once I have that story, then we can have a separate conversation about whether or not I like it. I'm not saying evaluators can't have opinions, but to me, the process of applying an opinion in your belief structure and what you prefer is a valuation question. That is saying in a market, given all the players, given my roster construction, given my resource management, here's what I think I want. And then that player will be worth something depending on all those factors. But all of that has nothing to do with how he plays football. Whether or not how many guys in my room doesn't change how he plays football. How much I've spent in the position doesn't change how he plays football. Whether or not how my coach wants to use him doesn't change how he plays football. So start by figuring out their story. Once you lock that in, the whole world's available to you. But if you conflate them, if you mix them too early, you can't unpack that again. And and let me let me push that just a little bit farther, only because you said something, and I know we're we're coming up on the ceiling in a little bit, but I want to just push it a little bit farther. Um, one last thing, 
you mentioned that a player can be good at inside zone, but players can be successful in inside zone for completely different reasons. Does anything spark to your mind that when I said that anything come to your mind where why could a player be successful at inside zone for different reasons? What could make them more successful? Well, it's the it's the understanding that a player being successful on anything is usually the stacking of multiple things. So I, I always go at it this way. The, the idea of production or lack thereof, you know, either side of it, pro or con, but production is generally determined by three, three different sides of this, you know, like a tripod. There's mental, physical, and technical. The idea that any one of those branches by itself generates 100% of that production, pretty slim. I'm not saying it's impossible. Pretty slim. Chances are they process some information and the accuracy and the timing by which they did that led to effects on whether how their body engages. And some people can process it quickly, but they can't get their bodies to activate it on time. And then some players can get their bodies to activate it on time, but don't have refined technique. and don't know how to use it at all times. And so you could have a player on inside zone that's fine, again, when the picture's clean. And it's, hey, you're going to go read this one guy, and if that linebacker flows over the top this to your right, you're going to go here, and if he stays behind, you're going to go there, and you're done. But then the second that the backside three technique penetrates and blows that up, and he had to dip his eyes down, now he doesn't see where the backer went, and his ability to feel that, potentially trying to deal with that without necessarily isolating his eyes on it, while trying to keep his eyes up to get – a feel for that, then get his body re-engaged on a track with his, yeah, it's two totally different skill sets. Um, so yeah, I'm always trying to figure out the mental, the physical, the technical that leads to that. Again, whether I liked the outcome or I didn't, or I shouldn't say like, but whether the outcome was positive or negative, I want to unpack which parts of that went in and chances are it's multiple. And again, they stack on top of each other in order to generate that production. And it, and with everything that you've just said, we could spend another four and a half hours really <laughs> discussing this position and this idea because I think the totality and the things that I would love to just resonate for people as they're listening is this holistic viewpoint. The idea that in the academy and things that we've talked about, telling a story, a holistic view, context matters, these are not just catchphrases to ensure that what you're saying should be meritable but rather they should be the foundation of what you are actually doing. Because if you're not engaging in context, then you're not in engaging in an objective evaluation of the player's skill sets. And I think this was just tremendous. Dan, I, I don't know where to say thank you or how to begin to say thank you, but this was outstanding. Are there any things in particular that you'd like to leave our listeners and also tell us what you're working on at the Academy, that YouTube channel is absolutely been dynamite. I had a chance recently to watch your interview with uh, Coach David Walker about Sony Michelle, which was outstanding. I encourage everybody here. They are putting out resources that rival things that people are charging for. And I can't, I can't begin to reiterate how excellent a lot of their content has been and some of the names they're bringing across the table for interviews. So, Dan, I'm going to lay it out to you. Any final thoughts and what are you guys working on? Well, thank you so much for having me. These conversations are, are so much fun because it's um, the theoretical behind it to me is really important. And so I, I appreciate people that want to explore that and not just get stuck on an individual case study. Um, yeah, guys, our, our vision moving forward to the academy because the football space has been so good to us and we would like to give back even more 
is that we want to help people before, during, and after. That's kind of our, our mission statement now. And so what we mean by that is if you never sign up for a class, if you never give us a penny, we still want to help you. We still want to put things in front of you that can help you get better. And so with our social media channels, we do more like the one clip type things and break them down and, and put that together. So you can see that on our Instagram or our Twitter or things of that nature. Uh, with the YouTube channel, you know, we kept hearing from people that they miss uh, the NFL matchup show. You know, I mean, you know, can we get more matchup? We, we try to build that for you. We're bringing on an NFL host uh, in almost every case, um, or at least a high-end college uh, host in, in almost every case, to sit down and take a player and unpack them and telestrate things and go through concepts and, and work through the whole thing. So, you know, if we're talking running back here today, you mentioned a David Walker one. We sat down and did 35 plays of Sonny Michelle from last year and talked about inside runs and outside runs and runs with fullbacks and runs without – uh, runs where the line did well and runs where the line didn't do well. And things in the passing game do all of it. And and he's unbelievable. Um, and so please come check that stuff out. And, and more importantly, tell us what's working. You know, again, if we're here for you, then we got to hear from you. you know, let, let's keep engaged. Tell us the things that are helping you learn. We'll keep that coming. Tell us the things that are still fuzzy. We'll work on them. Um, this is a, a community. We, we have a our other line is where the evaluation community comes to learn. We, we believe in that. This, this is an evaluation community. We all are in this uh, to help each other get better. So what can we do to be of service to you? Please just let us know. You could follow Dan on Twitter at Dan underscore Hatman. Of course, you can go ahead and follow everything that the Scouting Academy is doing, both on their YouTube channel and on their Twitter handle, as well as on Instagram. I cannot advocate enough for the mission statement that they represent and what they want to bring to the community of scouting and evaluation. We engaged in a deep conversation that could have went even further. And I'm sure Dan and I (laughs) wishes we could go further, but we wanted to make sure that we left you wanting more. And we hope we did. We hope we left you wanting more. We hope we piqued your interest and piqued your understanding um, and, and really kind of pushed you down a rabbit hole as they would say to explore. So on behalf of Dan, myself, and everybody at the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast, thank you so much. And please join us next time as the summer seminar series keeps rolling along as these movement marvels take us to the marvelous insights that we need to have as evaluators in this space and what we can do to continue to grow our space. Because if we're not changing, if we're not developing, then I don't know if we're ever getting better. So these discussions hopefully do that for all of us. I know they do it for me. So thank you so much, and we'll see you next time.